0: Give God's word. I'd love for you to turn to Mark chapter number 10 this morning. Mark chapter number 10. We'll begin our scripture reading in verse number 17. What a joy it is to be with you this morning. And a privilege to bring you the word of God. If you will and are able, we'll stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. Um, We see that as an example in scripture and we've adopted that example and do, I pray, have a a true reverence. When the Bible speaks, God speaks and our ears should perk up and listen. Our hearts should be tender, our eyes open, our ears ready to hear. Mark chapter 10 and verse number 17. Marked by the um, Spirit of God, writes these words. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not, be, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, so whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at his word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we come to you again. Father, I'm, I'm convinced we can never come to you too often. The great tragedy is, is we don't come to you as often as we can. Father, we should come to you just to praise you all throughout the day. But often we come with just a need. So, Father, let us take a moment and just praise you. For who you are. Father for the glory and the majesty that dwells within your character Father. For your holiness and your justice Lord. For your righteousness and goodness. Father also. For your grace and for your mercy Lord. Father we praise you for being other than us. Different, separate. Totally. Another entity. But at the same time Father. And we praise you that Jesus Christ, and in Him, Father, through the power of the Spirit, you span the gap, um, in some sense, to make us like you. Father, not that we are gods, but now we can be godly in Christ. And Father, um, we praise you for that. Father, we praise you for the Spirit of God. Um, not only did Christ come, but He left And we know that as he left, Father, he left us a comforter, an encourager, someone who would come alongside someone, Father, who would dwell even within us, and he's here now. Father, I don't always feel him. I don't always feel you. Sometimes, Lord, I feel alone. But I know you're there. Father, maybe some of the people before me this morning feel the same way oftentimes. Father, remind them this morning that you're there. Father, speak to us through your word. Father, make it more than just ink on a page. Father, make it more than just words to us. Or great wisdom. Or good things, Father. Um, But may the very unique presence of Christ be present among us in the power of the Spirit such that with open hearts and open minds, Father, and um, the scales removed from our eyes, uh, may we hear from you this morning. God, and may you accomplish eternal things. Father, may any preconceived notion or presuppositions about the text be removed. Father, may distractions be delayed for the next hour, Father. And may we stay our minds upon this thing that we may hear from you, Father. And the word of God is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, Father. It's a hammer that crushes uh, men's hearts asunder. It's, um, it's it's powerful and able to accomplish its purpose, uh, but it, but but also, Father, we know that it's sweet to the taste and and that it's like honey that comes out of a honeycomb, Father. So may we taste the taste the Lord this morning and know that He is good, Father. May the the Word of God come forth in our hearts, Father, not as a um, a bondage um, or an enslavement to us, Father, but freedom in Christ to live and to serve Him the power of the spirit father and may we take great pleasure in knowing and hearing the gospel this morning and learning more of our savior whose name is christ father go with us now help me father to be faithful i'm um, to preach that which is necessary father and to lay aside any idle words god just um, just give us your word this morning and accomplish your purpose in jesus name amen you can be seated thank you so much for standing Um, I know that some of you are visiting with us. Um, Just to bring you up to speed, we've taken the book of Mark as a whole. Um, I didn't choose this text this morning. Um, This text came to us through simple verse-by-verse preaching. I mean, the Lord brings it to us each providentially, meaning um, He understands where we're at. And it's amazing how oftentimes... Uh, the very word that we need, God providentially brings to us um, the time that we need it, and I'm praying that that's um, exactly what happens in your heart this this morning. Um, we come back to an age old question as our Lord Jesus picks up the story uh, from last week. He ends his discourse about children to his disciples, and verse number twenty three says, "Then Jesus." Or, I'm sorry, um, I was reading out of chapter number 10, the next portion. Um, we read in uh, chapter 10 and verse number 17 that after he finishes his discourse, that now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So we pick up the story from last week, and Jesus, again, is once on the road. He's um, He's traveling. And as he's traveling, as he often does, we know that at this portion in the book of Mark, he's ending, or he's close. He's coming near the end of his ministry. At this point, um, he's got his face set towards Jerusalem like a flint. He knows that his work is to um, give his life upon Calvary, upon the cross. He's already taught that to his disciples many times, and he continues to drive that home. He's moved now, really, from a public ministry to a private ministry for the most part, and he's discipling his apostles, those close twelve as to um, what they're going to do and need when he's he's gone. Um, But it's not time for him to go yet. Again, providentially, he's traveling that way. But things have not been orchestrated yet to where Rome and Judaism would gather together and they would crucify the Christ. Sure, he could be picked up and just transported there, uh, but it's not yet time. So all along the way, he's continuing to disciple the disciples, to teach them, to be their rabbi, their teacher, um, as well as minister to those who, who come to him. And here we find uniquely a man running to him. And it's a man with a great question, probably the greatest question of all. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? This shouldn't come as a surprise to you, or to me, or anyone familiar with the Gospels, or with Christ himself, that we should have such accounts, recorded. If you remember, the ultimate purpose of the preservation of the Gospels um, is not to teach us exhaustively um, or give us a historical narrative, uh, per se, or to prove um, the validity of the Bible. It's simply, as John tells us, that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Thus, everything revolves around the Son Everything revolves around Christ, everything in the Gospels revolve around that one great question, what must I do to be saved? This is a question that was not uncommon in Christ's day, and it's a question that's probably not that uncommon in our day. And while the whole of the book, meaning the Bible, kind of centers on that question and that purpose, it's pretty interesting if you read the Bible from beginning to end that you don't find that explicit question more. You really only find it a few times. You find it in Acts chapter 2 and verse 27 when Peter preaches at Pentecost to the Jews. Why? Because they murdered the Christ. He pointedly looks at them and calls to their sin. And he calls them to faith in Christ. The text says, Now when they had heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Um, God convicted them. And that was their response. And then there was the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 and verse 30 that looks to Paul and Silas and asks the question after God frees those men from jail and just pulverizes um, the scene with an earthquake. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And of course their response is similar to that in Acts. Peter looks and as Paul looks says something of the nature in Acts chapter 16. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And he says you and your household. Of course, the gospel is preached over and over all throughout the gospels, but rarely do we ever see such an earnest inquiry about what to do with, your, with their souls. Here in Mark, we find a very similar account, but also very different. Um, this account's recorded in Matthew as well as in Luke. and It's somewhat strange for that very reason, to know what the, the ages and maybe today you ponder. Maybe that's the question you have. And if it's not, that's the question you should have. What must I do to inherit eternal, eternal life? So let's meet the man. Let's meet the man in verse 17. Now as he was going out in the road, one came running out before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And the first thing I'd like to draw your attention to is the character of the man. And all the synoptic Gospels tell us a few things. As you, and when I say synoptic, I mean those Gospels that have parallel accounts. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke would be those synoptic Gospels. And all these Gospels have this account, each one offering little different nuggets of, of information. All the synoptics tell us that he was rich. Um, you read that in verse number 22. But he was, um, he was sad at his word and went away sorrowful, for he had many great possessions. All of them um, tell us that very, um, that very truth. But not all of them tell us what we would often refer to, and maybe you have a, a, a Bible who has a heading, that has a heading in it, and it says, Jesus counsels the rich young ruler. Mark doesn't tell us that he was young, nor does he tell us that he was a ruler. But Matthew and Luke do. Matthew 19, 20 tells us that he was a young man. When you study the word young, it's, uh, most people believe that he's speaking of a man that is post-puberty, yet prior to marriage. So probably the picture is here a man who is 16, 17, or 18 years old. I'm um, Not yet um, enclosed in the bounds of marriage, but old enough to be able to rule. And that's what Luke tells us, that he is a ruler. Um, many believe that he was either a member of the Sanhedrin, which would have been this high council in the nation of Israel, and Judaism, a religious leader. Um, at the very least, he's a leader in a synagogue um, uh, of some sort. And, and again, all of this is uh, skeptical, all of this is just speculation. That's probably a better word. Uh, but the picture is clear. We have, a, we have a young man of considerable wealth and religious influence. We don't know everything about him. Uh, but let me say that, that, that what seems to be unique about this is that he seems to be a fine young man. All throughout the Gospels, we've met Pharisees and scribes. And over and over again, I've told you that the Pharisees and the scribes are here for what purpose? Um, to malign the Lord Jesus Christ, to run His name amok, to um, at, at best just just deter others from following Him by, by, by determining that He's a false prophet by getting caught in these, um, these, these philosophical debates or scriptural arguments. But at the very worst, they desire to um, imprison Him and count Him as a criminal and at the very worst, um, and will one day um, crucify Him. What makes... This story so sad is that I don't think that that's his, this young man's goal. The thing that makes this story so sad is that this, this young lad of sorts here gives every impression of being a sincere and a fine young man according to most people's standards. He was the kind of man that any mother would probably be proud to have. He was probably well-groomed, fine clothes and nice manners. Um, he's eager and seems to be sincere. Um, he runs up and he kneels before Christ and he asks Him that great question. I mean, it's interesting to note that not, not only does he have wealth and religious influence, but, he, but, but part of the reason I think he's sincere is because he shows a tremendous amount of respect for our Lord. Uh, imagine with me again that he's a prominent high member of whatever religious establishment of the day. Um, he throws here dignity to the wind. He runs and he falls on his knees. You know, in those days... Rich people and religious people, they didn't run. They had servants that ran for them. Secondly, they don't fall on their knees for just anyone, um, let alone some of them, anyone. Rich people didn't fall on their knees unless they had a very good reason. And for the typical Jew, Jesus wasn't one. I um, mean, you see, by, the most, by this time, most of the Jews had little or no time or respect for Christ. And if they did, they were, they were not afraid to show... And for those that, that didn't show any respect, many of them weren't afraid to show their animosity. To think well of Christ and even show Him a humble respect was a form of betrayal um, with many of the Jews. It would have been a dangerous thing to identify publicly with Christ, which is probably why Nicodemus in John chapter 3 didn't. And he went by night to ask him that great question um, about being birthed or born again and that great conversation about um, salvation. This man, though, throws it all to the wind. Despite the hostility, despite the fear, um, despite the the Jewish um, heart, um, the the natural Jewish tendency to revert from Christ and to to oppose Him, he, he discards it all and comes to Christ during daylight hours and kneels before Him with a natural respect for this man. This man exudes sincerity in my mind. He's not a fake. I'm convinced he's genuinely, um, genuinely, speculating, or, uh, genuinely desiring to know um, the, the answer to his question. And thus it, 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 it intrigues his curiosity that he must ask the question. And he asks the question, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And you continue to see just the respect that he has for Christ. Um, it's in the title he uses to address Jesus. Good teacher, he says. You know, the Christians throughout the ages and all the commentaries unanimously tell us that this this title, good teacher, is unparalleled in Jewish literature. Nobody even even addressed a good rabbi that way. It wasn't a title that you just threw around. Um, Again, it's apparent that this young man, with all of his prominence and all of his wealth, um, left his worldly pursuits that day because he had an earnest question, had heard about Christ, and thought that this man may be Uh, able to help me. He eagerly yet respectfully pursues Christ because he desires guidance and wisdom in what he considers to be essential matters. It's seen in his haste. He runs. His eagerness for spiritual matters is seen in his question. It's a good question. Like he wasn't there to debate the issue. He wasn't going to get lost in secret trappings of philosophy. I mean, he was serious. You're earnest, young man, who cuts to the chase and asks him that great question: What must I do to inherit eternal life? Matthew writes it like this and adds, um, "Good teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life?" He's asking about salvation. How can I be saved? He's asking about eternal life. He's not an atheist. He's not an agnostic. He's, he's someone already convinced of the eternal nature of life and the, and the eternal nature of the soul. And he asks that great question, although it's skewed, it's there. Um, uh, eternal life's there, and I'm here, and I know that I'm without God. How do I get that, in some sense, is what he's asking the question. Now, at the same time, let's take just a step back for a moment and draw attention to something else. Um, From Jesus' perspective, and maybe from ours, you know, and from an evangelist's perspective, man, this is a dream come true. You know, it's like you only find that question a few times in Scripture, at least explicitly, and because that that, that question is rare. And it's probably rare for you as well. Us as evangelists love the idea of someone at work or someone at home or our children or or anyone else just coming up and just pointedly asking that question, man. I'm not a fisherman, but I imagine fishermen dream about that day when the fish will just jump in the boat and say, here, (laughs) I'm here, put the hook right there, take me in, you know. I'm your guy. And that's, in some sense, exactly um, what you have here. Jesus has a tremendous opportunity to reel him in. Surely we'll get the answer like in, like Peter gave in Acts chapter 2. You know, repent. Surely we'll get the answer like Paul gives in Acts chapter 16, 31. You know, repent, or believe, is what he says. Um, but it's interesting to note that that's, a, that, that, that's not Jesus' response. Jesus does something quite strange here. Something that probably most evangelical preachers and evangelists would have a fit over today. Because He doesn't seal the deal. He probably doesn't approach it as any of us would ever approach it by nature. I mean, what would you do? Somebody comes up to you and asks, what must I do to be saved? You know? What would we say? Almost guarantee that we wouldn't have naturally went the route of Christ but then we have to ask the question was Christ right and of course we all want to say yes does Christ not understand the gospel Um, of course he does is Christ not a good or an efficient evangelist of course he is you know but many would today argue that here you know that by natural standard if an average man did this they're not willing to say it about Christ but if if they said it about an average person like me as they watched me encounter someone and I did this very thing, um, they would probably question um, whether or not I was sincere or whether or not I knew what I was doing or whether or not I understood the gospel at all. You know? And I've had that here. I've had people you know, um, tell me before you know, that because I don't do certain things that the gospel wasn't presented. You, you preach the text and you preach Christ and, and at the end of it, it's, it's, it's just not enough if you don't follow some you know, five-step plan to getting somebody to repeat a prayer. Um, and, 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 and many of us came to to, to faith in Christ like that as, with a sincere call and a desire um, to know him but 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 we can 't be superficially attached to this method without getting to the heart of exactly what each of us believes and I think that that 's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ does here i 'm convinced that this passage is saturated with the gospel i 'm convinced that That Christ's statements that 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 He urges him and teaches him and gets to the root of his issue so that he can bring him to himself and bring him to Christ. And you see it in the initial response. Why do you call me good? There is none good but God. I'm convinced that Jesus is going to present the gospel to this man. And He's going to bring to light facets of the gospel that this young man needs to know. Isn't that wonderful? You know, you study the life of Christ and you study the way that he interacts with people and and it's almost, you you don't find a a, a one-stop shop model for how to engage somebody in evangelism. You know, what you find is the Lord Jesus Christ meeting people along the way and meeting people where they are and hitting the target um, of their heart um, to remove whatever idol it is. Or whatever thing they're worshipping so that they would worship the Lord. So that they would worship Him. And thus Jesus you know, meets every person where they are. And that's exactly what He does here. And He does it initially by rebuking the man. Most of the time the gospel always begins or at some point culminates in our lives with a rebuke. <laughs> you know? I mean that's what He does. He, he asks him that great question, Why are you calling me? Good. He's going to bring into focus to the young rich ruler that if he is to understand something about eternal life, then he must understand something about the gospel and that the gospel is first and foremost a message not about man, but a message about God himself. The gospel is a message about God. Um, If you're taking notes at some point in this message, it may not be quite as clear. Um, I think he's going to address three issues, that there is something in the gospel about God it's primarily a message about him. He's going to correct his view and misunderstanding of the law. And then finally, the gospel is a message about faith and repentance. And That's exactly what he's going to bring um, to his conscience and to his heart. And I think that's a great model for you and I to adopt um, as we engage others, our children or people within our families or people within the world. And that when we engage, we need to get to God. We need to get to the law and its original purpose as we bring it to bear upon their hearts, and we need to get to Christ. And then God's designed for them to come to Him by faith and by repentance. So first, the gospel is a message about God. You know, Right off the bat, Jesus challenges this man's understanding about God. The man didn't ask about God. Did he? No, he asked about eternal life. But Jesus says to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. But he says something, that, he doesn't say anything about God, but he says something to Jesus that indicates that one of the things that he lacks and needs is a true knowledge and a right understanding of who God is. Why do you call me good if there is no one good but God, he says. You know, some people might be thinking, Jesus, you're, you're a little tough on the guy, you know, maybe he just misspoke and he didn't mean that. Or maybe you could be thinking that that's an accurate statement because in, 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 in truth it is, Right? That that is true. No one is good but God and he calls him God and that would be a correct statement for him to refer to Jesus Christ as God because he is God. But the problem with that is is that uh, th- there's no indication here and Jesus even gives the indication otherwise um, that-, that this man doesn't believe he's God. So it is an inaccurate statement if Jesus is what this man perceives in his mind and he's made him in his own image and he's perceived him as a man. um, If that's the case then he has a great misunderstanding about who man is and about who God is. The problem um, is ultimately rested in his mind and thinking in his definition of goodness and where that lies. The young man had an idea of goodness that rested in himself and ultimately in human achievement. He believes that he can be good. He believes that man can basically be good and do good things. And that he can do good things. And that if he does enough good things, that he can climb his way to heaven. And that's the basic misunderstanding. The fundamental problem. And that's exactly why in Matthew's account he says that very thing. He asks him the question, Good teacher, what good thing must I do? And... That's Jesus. why Jesus says only God can do that, because only God is that. And there is a sense in which Jesus hangs the question before him, to him, as he, he responds to him, who is God? And he could have summarized it like this, do you even know who God is? Because that question reflects a misunderstanding about who God is. So in Christ's gospel presentation, he assesses what this man knows about God, and begins there, and from there reveals the the true nature and desires of his his heart. And the first thing again we need to say about the gospel is that the gospel is a message about God. Um, It's a message about his goodness, it's a message about his holiness, it's a message about his righteousness, it's a message about his love. It's not a message about you, it's not a message about me. You know, Jesus is not our boyfriend, and uh, I mean, it's, it's not as if he was in heaven one day and he needed us and and um, he just couldn't keep his hand off of us because he fell in love with us. The message is about God. It's about his holiness, his righteousness, his love, his, his indignation, but also his grace and his mercy. And you read most tracts and hear most gospel presentations today... And most men present the gospel in that way, man-centered, and what he needs. And while that needs to be addressed, we can never know what we need unless we know who God is. You know? That, 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 that there is a great need in our day and, and in my life to preach to myself and in pulpits all across the world and in every generation that we would preach who God is. That we would go to the Scriptures and search Him out and find out to know Him. Not to know what I need to do to, to, to inherit eternal life, but essentially to know who He is. And that if we know who He is and we know what His great standards are because that's who He is, then we will know our great need. We'll know the great gap that spans between Him and us. We'll know the Creator-Creation distinction is farther than we could ever go. We'll know that if there is none good, no, not one. Then we'll know that there's no ladder that you can climb high enough. We'll know that, 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 that Babel could not build a tower large enough or high enough. Well know that there's no intellect, skill, knowledge, philosophy, um, um, intellect—you uh, you name it—that could ever um, span the gap between you and God. God must span the gap for you. That's the idea. If the rich young ruler understood his Bible, understood what God had said, and he's one that should. Now, I don't want to give. Uh, let's not give the guy a hard time oh, explicitly, but 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 there is a sense in which he knew it. We're not talking to pagans or atheists or agnostics here. This was a religious leader in a synagogue or the Sanhedrin. This young boy grew up meditating on and memorizing the entirety of the Old Testament. He should have known what good was. It, and, and the goodness of God should have made him feel, not that he could merit salvation, but it should have made him feel like he was unworthy of it. Unworthy of it. Psalm chapter 16 and verse number 1. And just take note that this would have been things, this would have been songs that he sung in synagogue as a young boy. and Maybe even in a synagogue led in worship. Psalm 16:1: Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. And the ESV re- references it like this, I have no good apart from you. The point Jesus is making is that this good God is the sole source of all goodness and a part of Him, we do not have any goodness. Paul says in, in one of his epistles that in the flesh dwells no good thing, there's nothing in me. But this guy was good according to his own standard. He had lived up to the standards of his day. When I say he's a genuinely eager, fine young man, I mean it. I mean that he probably lived up to the standards of his mom and dad. He probably lived up to the standards of the, of the religious day. He probably ran a tight ship at the synagogue. You know, he's looking a lot like, uh, but, but he's looking at himself like, I'm pretty good because of that. He measures himself against the law of God and he says, I'm a pretty good guy. And he comes here to ask Jesus, I think I've got it, but is there anything else that I can do um, to inherit eternal life? Not only that, he should have known, Psalm 86, verse 5, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. He should have known that the goodness of God is is, is inherently in God and that we don't have it, but it should also drive us to see our great need. That great need of forgiveness. That's what he says, for you are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love for all who calls upon you that that's what the goodness of God does that, that that par excellence that that moral purity that holiness that righteousness, that ultimate goodness it's it's, it's more than just a, a a general word for us to say man how's your day going it's fine it's good no no, no, it meant something to them it meant something in their language that the goodness of God was attached as a as a, as a as a a An essential characteristic to God such that it separates Him from us. And that this goodness, if if seen in the right divine light, um, brought men to their knees all throughout the Scriptures and all throughout history. That that if goodness is a thing that you can conjure up, but if goodness is a thing that you can conjure up with your own works, then you'll use it to achieve eternal life. That's the problem. But if it's a thing that reveals to you the very nature and character of God, then it will drive you to your knees in humble dependence upon Him because you recognize that you are not good, no, not one, and that if you are left to yourself, that you will perish. The good God is good to those who have a humble and a contrite spirit. He would have known Psalm 109 verse 21, but you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake because your steadfast love is good, deliver me." Oh, how this young man should have seen that that it was the goodness of God that should have led him to a brokenness and repentance over his own sin. And again, isn't it ironic that a young man who grew up under the tutelage of rabbis and sang the Psalms, maybe even led them as a younger man, yet he, knew, he, he seemingly knows nothing about the goodness of God. But at the same time, let's not be so hard, because maybe that's us too, right? I mean, how many people in... This area, you, some of you included, grew up singing those psalms or singing those great old hymns. You know, probably sung a thousand times in your life. But have you ever thought about, be thou my vision, O Lord, of my heart? Not be all else, save that thou art. Thou my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light's. You ever pondered those great words where you sing it with full truthfulness and with a fullness of heart as you delight in the Lord and desire for Him to be what this young man here will not submit to, the all in all. That there were psalms that were born and that He should have understood and that we too have sung songs and psalms and read the Scriptures and if we know anything about God, um, it should bring us to our knees one of the biggest problems is that we begin our pursuit of happiness in this life and our pursuit of joy in the next. And we, we, we pursue after it and we always begin with ourselves. Um, A.W. Tozer says, The most important thing that you ever think about at all, about any one of us, here's what we think about when we think about God. What do you think about when you think about God? You know? Is it like looking in the mirror and you see yourself and you fashion him after yourself? Or is he something different? Is he something distinct? Is he something other than? Is he something holy? Is he something that you cannot be? Thus there is this uh, humbleness and you sit before him to know that you are unworthy. But at the same time, his goodness and forgiveness in in that um, it it defines you. um, Because that's who he is as well. The gospel is ultimately a, a message about God. Secondly, the gospel is ultimately um, a message about the law of God. In some sense, you know, verse number nineteen says, hey, "Jesus Christ is a red letter." You know the commandments. What I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? You have a misunderstanding about God. But then he goes on. He says, "You know the commandments: do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and your your mother." He brings the law of God to bear upon his soul, and he has a fundamental misunderstanding about that. Now, don't get me wrong, and don't misunderstand. Jesus is not saying, hey, hey, guy, keep the commandments, and that's all you can do, right? You know, like, strive harder. Do your best, and at the end of the age, Jesus will balance out your works. There's a lot of Christians out there, or quote-unquote Christians out there, and religions who, who, who argue for just that. You know, you can't nail them down on assurance of salvation because they don't know because they don't know if they've done good enough. They come to Jesus with this very same question, whether they ask Him explicitly or not. But it's in their mental, uh, it's in their mental game. It's in their heart. What else do I need to do to achieve um, the status of eternal life? What do I need to do um, to please God in such a way that He'll have me for all of eternity? And if that's the case, then you have a misunderstanding about God and you have a misunderstanding about the law. As a master evangelist, Christ takes the law, as Paul argues, um, to be a schoolmaster and a teacher. And he takes this young, law to, uh, this young man to school, this young rich ruler, this self-righteous young man to show him something about himself because through the law comes the knowledge of, of sin. Jesus is going to put the finger on this man's sin. And he's going to do it by using the law of God. That's the bait. You see, we think the bait should be different. What Jesus must first do is convince the young man that he's hungry before he'll ever eat. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. He thinks he's righteousness, he's not. Jesus must first lovingly convince him that he's not righteous so that a righteousness that is not his own can be given to him in Christ. And the way that Jesus will do this is by putting before him God himself represented in the law. The way he does this is to lay before him what God requires um, or the law of God and I think the very character and nature of God himself in some sense. Um, One uh, one commentator writes these words, the law is the answer to the question about eternal life. Now hang on with me because I'm not saying that you can achieve it by any ways. But he goes on to say, not because a man can keep them and earn eternal life. But if he honestly tries to keep them, he will be brought to the recognition of his own bankruptcy and then be prepared to receive the kingdom of God like a child. Hopeless and helpless. End quote. Verse number 20. Um, he carries on. And he, answered Jesus, uh, and he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my, my youth. So the law of God is brought before him and the young man reveals a gross misunderstanding about God about his law, and about his own sin. And again, it's easy to be hard on the young man. But it should be recognized that this is what he was taught. In the Babylonian Talmud, which is a writing of Jewish literature, wrote, Man possesses the ability to fulfill all the commands of God perfectly. This was a fine young man who not only adhered to the Word of God, or tried to, but he also adhered to his his rabbinical teaching such that he believed it. And he believed man over believing God. I don't doubt for a moment that this young man lived an exemplary life. That he was a shining pillar in the community. That everything on the outside was, was in place. He wasn't a liar probably. He wasn't a cheater, cheater. He had it all together on the outside. He wasn't a moral rebel. He was the kind of guy that you would want for a business partner. Maybe even marrying your daughter. He had little to no external vices. But this one thing Jesus says you lack. Verse 21. In light of the law, in light of Christ's teaching on goodness of God, um, there was still something that he lacked, something that was missing, and he could not see his own sin. So Jesus seeks to bring it to light. Verse 21, Jesus looking at him loved him. What an amazing statement. Jesus looking at him loved him and speaks to him and says to him, You know, this man was deceived by his own sinfulness. What does Jesus do? He loves him. His heart broke for the young man and his human nature in some sense because the young man was brought to believe a lie. But his love, but Christ's love for him does not provoke Jesus to pull back one iota. He tells him the thing that he needs. He doesn't comfort him, he doesn't encourage him to, to, to study more, this or that. He just brings to bear upon his heart that's what keeps him from Christ. He says, go, sell all that you possess. Come and follow me. So whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross. Follow me, he says. The modern day evangelist would look at Jesus and say, wait a minute, what are you doing? Couldn't Jesus have said, well, you're just misunderstanding something here, let's pray together. I mean, you believe in me, right? You want to go to heaven, right? it's fine we'll just make your profession of faith we'll baptize you and we'll just explain this stuff as we go this is discipleship stuff not salvation stuff come on we'll straighten it out later not for a minute not for a minute you take everything that you have he says and you give it all to the poor that's how you'll get treasure in heaven that's where eternal life is found and then you follow and follow me And what Jesus is doing is Jesus is taking the finger of the law and putting it on this young man's real sin. He may have been exemplary in terms of all the areas that we had mentioned, but he had a heart that was an idol factory. Make no mistake about it, Jesus takes the law again and says, take everything that you have and sell it. Why? Because this man's first sin and greatest sin was the first and greatest commandment. He did not love God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his body. He loved riches too much. He was guilty of breaking the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet. And Jesus with one simple command puts the finger on this man's true sin, that he was a covetous idolater. Paul tells us later that that's the very nature of idolatry. It's covetousness. It's, um, it's, 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 and that was the nature of his sin. And in the command, he's telling him that he needs to repent and to believe. Your money and your land cannot be your God. He's saying, "Sell everything that you have and follow me. Repent and believe." That's the gospel. Is a message about repentance and belief, about faith and about repentance. That if you and I are to have eternal life, we must repent. What must we do? We must leave it all. Now you may be wondering: Is this a universal command for all? And there's a sense in which, yes, it is. And then there's a sense in which, no, it's not. It's not a universal command in the sense that he doesn't require every single person that ever comes to him to sell everything that they have, right? In Luke 19, we meet a man by the name of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Um, This little guy who climbed up a sycamore tree. He sought out Jesus and God saved him and Christ came to him and changed his life and gave him a new heart. And you know what Zacchaeus does? Zacchaeus comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, is what I'll do. I'll sell, sell half of what I've gotten. If I've, I've wronged anybody, I'll pay him back fourfold. But Jesus doesn't say, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, a few chapters earlier, I, I, I told the young rich ruler to, to, to sell everything that he had but, and you're only doing half. You've got to give it all. He doesn't do that. He doesn't argue that. Uh, in, in Luke chapter 14 and Luke chapter number 6 and many other places, He doesn't require in a gospel encounter of, of the, the demoniac or in a gospel encounter of, the, of the, the woman at the well, He doesn't demand the same things externally that He demands of this man here. So it's not universal in, in that sense. But it is universal in the sense that whatever idol that you have in your heart that keeps you from God, you must turn from that to Him. That's the idea. That's the idea. Um, Luke chapter 14 and 25 says, Now, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoever you does not forsake all that he has, he cannot be my disciple in that context. Luke chapter 6 and 45, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil heart of his treasure brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, he says, and do not do the things that I say? He's bringing to this young man this idea, um, this, this fundamental misunderstanding to light that he believes that obedience can merit salvation, and that's not the case at all. So he brings the law of God and God Himself to bear against his heart, to bring Him to the end of His to see that his obedience is, is not enough. That obedience I mean, in the Christian life is not to merit salvation, but it's an outgrowth of the work of Christ in the life of a believer. An unbeliever does not submit to God. You say, well, he was keeping the law, wasn't he? Not in the truest sense. He kept none of the law. He was keeping the law to be saved, and that was a misuse of the law. And the law does not save a man. The purpose of the law is to lay bare the heart of a man. And that, 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 that God may lay His finger upon His rebellion against Him. And once that heart happens, God requires repentance of that sin. When faith and repentance are born, it manifests itself explicitly, externally, in different ways in a person's life. And that the gospel is a message about faith and repentance. Repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus he says, Turn from that idol and follow me, is what he says in verse 21. Take up the cross and follow me. You know what Christianity looks like? It looks like following him. It looks like following Christ. It's more than just monastic piety. It's more than just monkery or popery. It's more than just selling everything that you have. It's more than le- just leaving father and mother. It's more than just taking up your cross. It's more than just self-deprecation and self-flagellation. It's, it's following Christ. You know? Some of us desire to be like this. Rich young ruler, and, and to be externally pious and to earn something with Christ. And he's saying that as pious as you are and as devoted as you are to this, you will never in any sense reach eternal life unless you turn from yourself and follow me, turn to Christ. Same theologian that we quoted earlier by the name of Cranfield says the command is at the same time a gift. Jesus offers himself to him. He himself is the answer to the man's question. He himself is the way to eternal life. To inherit eternal life must come when one lays hold on it as it is offered in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is driving this young man with a, with a, with a, with a pointed um, rebuke in what he believes about God, to, with God Himself and with the law. He, he, he seeks to, 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 to fix his misunderstanding about it and to bring Christ before him. That's how you present the gospel. That's how you do it. Jesus is driving this young man to an utter point of incapability by commanding him to do the impossible. You say, well, that's not impossible. People do it all day long. It's not impossible to give away everything that you have. Listen, for some it is. For some it is. Their hearts are so enslaved to it. In their hearts it reigns as king, and to do otherwise is to submit to a life of torture. Therefore, they cannot let it go. And I think that that's true in the heart of every man. Whatever the greatest love is, And it may look like lust to you. It may look like money to you. It may look like possessions to someone else. It may look like this or it may look like family. It may look like relationships. It may look like a hundred different things depending. And that's why Jesus, when he encounters somebody, he comes to where they are, sees what kind of knowledge of God they have, what they believe about eternal life, what they understand about the law and what they know about Christ. The very thought brings, he couldn't, it was impossible to him. Um, he couldn't bring himself to give it up. The very thought brings unrest to their, his soul. And to people's souls and their sorrow and sadness and distress is a practical result. That's exactly what he says. But in verse 22, he was sad at his word. And he went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had great possessions. That he could not do what God required him to do because he would not do what God required him to do because of his love for his great possessions. You know? And that was his response. I would love to tell you that he got it. I'd love to tell you how many times I've given the gospel, man, and I just wish they got it. I would love to tell you that as Christ laid his heart bare by utilizing the law as a schoolmaster, that as a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, he learned the lesson that the good teacher had been brought to class that day. I would love to tell you that God broke his heart and that he saw the glory and riches of Christ such that he counted no, no loss to sell everything and that he had that day and take up his cross and follow Jesus. You know, as I read and I thought about this young man, he reminded me an awful lot of what I thought, what I think about the Apostle Paul would have been like as a young man. I even toyed with the idea maybe that's him, and that's just spec yeah, that's just me. That's not scripture at all. I would love to think that at some point he got it. That he turned to God from idols, as 1 Thessalonians 1 1.9 says, and followed Jesus, and the Lord blessed him a hundredfold with blessings that far outweigh everything else that he gave up. I love to tell you that he counted it all lost and as a heel of dung compared to the excellencies that he found in Christ and that he used to rest in in this life. And now he's gratefully honoring and serving the King. But our Lord doesn't leave it there. He leaves it with sorrow and sadness. Because he didn't get it. Jesus would not give him one ounce of hope that his resume was good enough to warrant eternal life on that great day. He wouldn't do it. And you know, sometimes even myself as a finite human being and maybe you are just quick to do that. Someone comes in with the grievous sin and they ask you, do you think I'm saved? And we spend hours trying to understand the intent of their heart and then ultimately settle on, I don't know. But Jesus doesn't. He plainly says that if there are any rivals of your love for me that you are unwilling to lay aside, you have no part in eternal life. And if there's no amount of good in this world for you to accomplish that will ever outweigh that, you're not going to heaven with idols in your hands, not even one, he says. And at the same time, we understand that and glory in the fact that he doesn't require perfection of us. Don't misunderstand me or, or think that that's what I'm saying. What I'm not saying is that if you struggle with sin, you're an idolater and you won't get to heaven. We recognize that in this life and the Christian life will never be ultimately free from sin, and thus the battle ensues. So I'm not saying that you must be perfect or live a sinless life, but you must today, if you're outside of Christ, throw out your resume and count everything that you've ever done for your salvation to inherit eternal life as nothing. That you love, that your love for Christ must be greater than your love for yourself and your idols. Whatever they may be. And many of you have done that. You've heard the Gospel and God did a great work in your heart and He laid hold of you. And you know that you've repented and believed today because you continue to repent and follow Christ. You know the struggle is hard and the battle is intense and that sin is difficult to mortify and kill. But when the Gospel came forth, you saw the law differently and you saw, and it showed you you're under bankruptcy of your supposed righteousness and your good works and it revealed to you the goodness of God as you never saw it before and there you abandoned any hope of saving yourself. And it showed you your need of Christ upon the cross to take the punishment of your sins so that you, He may forgive you and that He may forgive yours. And you saw that the just demands of the law were said for sin was death. But that Jesus Christ on behalf of His bride took that punishment that she may have life and have it more abundantly. And you saw that to be part of the bride of Christ demands your belief, demands your your turning from idols. And with the Spirit of God's help, you turn from your idols and you embrace Christ. And although it's hard and the battle's tough, man, you're still following Him to this day. Praise God for doing that in our lives. He's making you day after day more like Jesus and you yield yourself more and more to His designs and His commands. But maybe some of you haven't. Maybe some of you are just resting in your good works, thinking that one day God will love you and let you into heaven because you love you and you let yourself into heaven. You know, when you study this passage, you study it in a context in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that is just overwhelming. That parable after parable and and illustration after illustration and and, and account after account just drive home the fact that there's nothing you can do. I'm here to tell you that today. If there's any application, there is nothing that you can do for your salvation. And that's the point. You know, if you were to go to Matthew's account... And you will need to turn there now. Prior to this account and the, and the, and the account on children, you would read a unique uh, portion to him that Mark doesn't carry. A, um, and, and, it, and it's the, the, the idea of the vineyard and the laborers in the vineyard and the master. You know, the point of that whole passage is just the freeness of grace. At the end of the day, he hires somebody at hour one. At the end of the day, he hires them at 11. And the workers at the end are upset with the master. And they're upset because the one at the end of the day made this a day's wage when the first one didn't work. You know, or when the first one worked for twelve hours, or however long that it was, and he's upset and he's saying, "Don't I deserve more?" And, you know, at the end of that, it culminates in this. He says, "I don't know any of you anything." You know, I promised you something, and based upon that promise, you received what I promised you for your labors or for being in the vineyard. The idea is just the freeness of grace, and that if any laborer receives anything, it's just the free grace and mercy of God. You go to Luke and you read that, 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 that prior to this account as well, you, you read a, a story of a publican and a, and a Pharisee. And the Pharisee comes and he, and he prays at the temple and, and he just brags upon how he's not like that sinner over there, that tax collector. And he thanks God for the things that he has and how, many, how better that he is and he's not like someone else. And then that little publican, that sinner, that tax collector over there won't even lift his eyes up to heaven but beats upon his breast in humility and just prays that God would have mercy upon his soul. Jesus pointedly looks at him and he says, who do, you found? who do you think left justified? So I'll tell you who left justified. The one, uh, the, the, the tax collector who, uh, who cried out to God for mercy. That that's the idea. That, 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 that prior to this as well, that you find a child, that if anybody's going to inherit the kingdom of God, he's going to come like a child with nothing to offer, nothing, nothing to help. You know, he's going to come helpless, hopeless, and, and in most societies, despised. He's going to come one that can't help himself. The, the context, And then you meet this young rich ruler who will not become like a child hopeless and helpless in need of Christ. He will not be like the publican who will bend his knee and, and cry out in humility for the mercy of God. He, he will not be like the laborer in the vineyard who rests in the promise that, of the freeness of grace that He promised to him. This young man will not become like a child. This young man will not become like a laborer and submit to the Master. This young man will not become like a tax collector or a sinner and this young man will perish because of it that's the idea that if any man will ever be saved it will be by virtue of the cause of Christ and that alone it will be sheer grace you will not work you will not labor you cannot um, do enough you cannot count enough you cannot make enough you cannot be enough um, for him and that's exactly why he sends Jesus Christ into the world to do that which is impossible with us and it culminates in that at the very end of the next passage in Mark chapter number uh, 10. When he says, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. And that's the idea. At the end of it, the disciples come to this conclusion, like who can be saved then? You know? And you may be sitting there in your seat and wondering, if that's the case, you put a, a high standard and a high mark upon salvation. If that's the case, then, then nobody can be saved. And that's the truth. Like, that's the point. None of us can be saved. None of us can save ourselves. It's impossible with man. There's not enough that we could do. I'm in this world with all the law before us, with all the commandments laid out there. We cannot schedule it out enough. We cannot be obedient enough. We cannot love God enough. I mean, how many of you have ever kept that commandment the greatest? To love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength like when at any point in your life have you ever done that to the to the to the point where God requires you know like none of us can do that that's the point then that's why Jesus Christ By the will of the Father and the power of the Spirit enters into the world to offer a freeness of grace to those that that, that they will abandon themselves and cling to God and finally and fully with the Spirit's help love Him like He deserves to be loved and honor Him like He deserves to be honored and live for Him like He deserves to be lived for. And you submit to this King not because He's an overwhelming tyrant and you're afraid of eternal hell. You submit to Him because He's a good and gracious King. And out of the gratitude of your heart, you take up your sword and you wield it by the power of the Spirit and you put to death the deeds of the flesh and you honor and serve Him in the freeness of the Spirit for the rest of His ages. And that's why you can do it with a smile on your face and joy in your heart because He is not a hard taskmaster anymore. Now, when the Spirit of God governs our heart. The law um, uh, that is written upon our hearts then becomes the joy and the pleasure of the person who has come to Christ. So we stand in the way of Jesus, or we stand here in the the lineage of Jesus and prophets throughout the ages, the apostles and faithful evangelists um, that God has used throughout history and beg you today to come to Christ. But I must tell you, you will never come to Christ on your own merit. You will never find Him. That's why He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And I pray that you get it. But maybe some of you don't. Some of you prayed the prayer and you've got the card in your wallet and the date in the cover of your Bible that says you've been saved, but you don't know a thing about God. Christ is nothing more than a byword. The law is a tyrant to be cast off. Repentance and faith are not in your vocabulary. And you don't care because you think you're good enough. You think you're lovely, you think you're caring, and that God will understand. You think that God would never require you to give up that thing that you love because you don't do that with your kids. Listen, the Bible's clear. No man and woman will ever enter into heaven with idols in his hands. No man can serve two masters. I know the world tells you you can, but you can't. The philosophy of the day is, you know, love whoever you want three or four times. It's an age of lack of commitment and devotion to anything, but that's, you know that's not true. You know that if your wife or husband gives, you some, gives something to another that they promised only to you, that that's wrong. You know that if your heart of hearts, that if a man can only truly love one woman in a covenantal way, and that not two or three and fourth and five, you know that that, that, that covenant is between the two of you. And listen, the God of the Bible demands the same. He will not take second place. He will not even take first First indicates rank. And there is no seconds in God's world. He's the only one. He says have no other gods before me. And that doesn't mean that you can have them after Him. It means that He has none before Him. That's why He puts on the list at some point that you'll have to leave sometimes father and mother, brother and sister, son or daughter and so forth. That the demands are high. Why? Because He demands a lot. And He demands to be preeminent. Number one say how do I do that turn from your idols and turn to Christ today he is a sufficient savior who is able to give you a new heart change you take out that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh put his spirit within you and give you for the first time ever in your life a reason to actually live you know He will make you a new creature and set you on a new path and give you new desires and give you new joys and new pleasures. And some of you look at us and you look around and you think, man, this is weird and this is different and this is crazy. And I know and I love it. Every minute of it. Every day of it. Every week of it. You know why? Because He first loved me. Let me just tell you, I wasn't lovable. I wasn't lovable at all. There was nothing in me that he should have pursued me. There was nothing I did that should have made him proud. You know, he should have abandoned me as an earthly father does. But the great thing about God is that as great and as holy as his justice is, his mercy and grace is just as great. And that he offers to all who will come to him today. Salvation and eternal life. If you'll turn from yourself and turn to Christ. That's what God requires of all of you. Believer, if that's you. you Say, I've already done that. Just keep on keeping on. And the gospel message today should just remind you of the great grace that is present within Christ. And that should be the foundation and source of your love. And labor for him. Something I've been very convicted about in former days and in very recent days. Is just the lack of joy and pleasure that I have in living out the Christian life. I look at it often days as a taskmaster in a service. And Christ does not desire that. But it should be the joy of our lives to take up sword and to either live or die for him. Because that's exactly what he did. With joy, he endured the cross, Hebrews tells us. And so should we. And if we go down, the world, our family should see the smile upon our faces because we would have chosen no other route because he chose us. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glorious privilege it is to call upon the name of the Lord. Father, what a message! What a question. What a pursuit. What a man. What a God. What a Savior. Father, I pray that you'll take your word and just take it to the depths of our hearts. Father, I pray we've been faithful today to lay before the people your bride. I'm a faithful word. What you desired in giving the text. Father, you wanted us to know something about you. Father, I pray that today we know that because we've labored in the field. Father, I pray that um, you've helped me to preach it with joy. I know, Father, you've just brought such pleasure to my heart and soul as I've thought on what your son did for me. Father, and I pray that it brings the utmost joy to the people's hearts. To think and meditate upon what you have, Father, done for them. Father, I pray that if somebody here today doesn't know Christ as Lord and Savior, that today will be the day of their salvation. Father, I pray that you'll reveal to them by your Spirit your goodness, and it'll humble them. And they'll think, this is impossible. But then you'll remind them that all things are possible with God. That they should stop using the law, whether it's the law of the land or the law of a church or the law that's written upon their own heart, to try to earn favor with God because they can't. But then you'll show Christ to them, who span the gap, time and reality, to become like us, to suffer as us, to contribute, Father, salvation to us in his own righteousness. And that's how you inherit eternal life. And from that flows gracious, joyful, willful obedience. God, I pray today that you will provoke our children who are without Christ. Those who may be listening to this that are without Christ. Father, to repent and to believe. To lay down the idols. That you would become the great and first love of their life. And that you would be their ultimate pursuit. And that you're worthy of that, Father. Father. One reason is, is that because you pursued us, and that we love you simply because you first loved us, maybe there's somebody here today not even looking for them, not looking for you. I pray, Lord, that you'll find them and make them new. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name because we know that if we prayed it in any other name, it would be impossible. But with God in Christ, by His Spirit, all things are possible even bringing dead men to life. That's your MO. That's what you do. God, I'm trusting you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.